This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Money in Service of Nature with Lorenzo de Rosenzweig. This week, we're delving into the world of finance and asking whether it's possible to support the life worlds of other species with some of the very same tools that have caused them harm. We're joined by Lorenzo de Rosenzweig, who has headed Latin America's largest nature conservation trusts for more than 30 years. I'm interested in this topic because parallel to this podcast, I invest financial capital in projects that help to regenerate nature. And in that work, I quite often encounter tensions and philosophical quandaries, both in myself and in conversations with my peers. And so I'd like to break those down a little bit to kind of get a lay of the land, if you will. As a disclaimer, these are views that I hold today, and I'm constantly refreshing them, challenging them, and updating them. So this is far from being a comprehensive or, or final perspective on these subjects, and I definitely welcome a discussion. On one hand, it's important to acknowledge, as many ecologists and economists do, that nature and natural systems and the trillions of processes that enable life will never be fully uh, captured and priced by markets. It's simply too complex. And if you think about it, nature's value is infinite or trends towards infinity because it underpins everything, literally everything, that makes our human economy possible. And so it's almost impossible to fully capture that in a, a risk assessment or in a you know biodiversity credit because something will always slip away or flutter away beyond the realms of, of what can be pinned down by a number or metric. And a number or metric also won't tell us about the touch of rough bark under our fingertips or the flutter of a beetle's wing. It's not the role of capital to make us appreciate or love nature more. And so we should be very careful of selling nature in order to save it. And just a final point on this as a word of caution, because money is fungible, which means you can you know, trade one for one, it effaces a lot of distinctions and can trigger the further commodification and abstraction of nature. So something like carbon offsets or uh, cap and trade systems or credits can be called irreconcilable with indigenous or animist worldviews that quite rightly hold every expression of life as irreplaceable. However, finance can be used on behalf of nature, and there are brilliant, brilliant ideas and sincere people out there who are pushing at the boundaries of the possible. You can look at the maturing industry of biodiversity markets, which do attempt to move beyond single metrics like carbon, 
or other approaches like debt for nature swaps or blue bonds, true cost accounting, payments for ecosystem services, and even very funky things like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, where nature can own itself. So I've uploaded resources and readings on the LifeWorlds website for people who want to dig into the kinds of approaches that I think are, are pretty cool in this finance for nature space. And perhaps then the conversation is more about finding the right balance of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say, and constantly checking that markets aren't getting in the way of the worldview that does restore the relationship with other life. With that said, let's hear from our guest, who hails from the conservation trust world. Lorenzo de Rosenzweig is an engineer and marine biologist who for 25 years was the director of the Mexican Fund for the Conservation of Nature, and he's also been chairman of the Mesoamerican Reef Fund for 17 years, which is a 35 million endowment fund. And then during his tenure in both of those institutions, he mobilized effort that raised about $410 million for different landscape projects all across Mexico and Latin America. And Lorenzo is now working in his new association, Terra Habitus, which focuses on private lands conservation, borderlands cooperation, and regenerative ranching in northern Mexico. He's also a photographer and a watercolor artist. And I have a beautiful watercolor of a hummingbird that he once gifted me that is on my wall above my bed, which makes me very happy every time I look at it. In our conversation, we're going to discuss some of these tensions I alluded to earlier. For example, how to reconcile nature's timelines with financial timelines, how to do his work well. He has been able to learn how to see through the eyes of other species. And he'll share also a vivid tale on how one whale saved an entire pelagic bay from a salt mining operation. Here is Lorenzo de Rosenweig, today on LifeWorlds. How did a marine biologist enter into the financial world? I can imagine that some people might imagine that those two realms are so distinct and far apart. Yes, the, the way it happened is that you go to school and you prepare yourself under certain assumptions of what your ideal career would be. And then you discover when you finish that the ideal conditions are not there. And you still have to get a work, get a job, and prepare to be a normal person earning a salary and being able to get married and all that stuff. So when I finished my school and my master's degree, I discovered that there was no market in Mexico for my services. Uh, a few government offices that had positions, but really nothing that was attractive. And uh, I don't know you what do you think about life, but I think life is a chain of very fortunate coincidences that we take or opportunities we take. And also it's a link of disasters that we don't take. In my case, I took most of the good coincidences and opportunities. And one of them was to work for an industrial fishing company. At that time, again, conservation was really, really nothing, nothing. No one would be talking about conservation. But So I took this opportunity to work for a company that was operating a tuna seiner's fleet in the Pacific and some other kind of boats. And immediately um, I became the troubleshooter or the rookie, you say in English, that would do the dirty job in the company because I was the latest to arrive. So I would get to do all of the strange jobs. And that gave me sort of a, a, a training or a capacity to do all kinds of things without being scared 
of being able to do them or not. And one of them was to learn a lot about finance, a lot about administration, investments and all that. So that was my first uh, dip, my first uh, practice into the financial and management world. And then later I resigned and decided to start my own business in something completely away or different from what I was doing, which I think was a mistake, but on the other hand, allowed me to be a a micro-entrepreneur. And then I shifted again to environmental science, engineering, and so all those kind of things. So in all of those different steps, I had to exercise administrative skills. So by the time the greatest opportunity in my life came, which was be part of the steering committee of the design process for Fondo Mexicano, which is the institution where I worked for 25 years as CEO. When that opportunity came, I was fully prepared because I knew a bit of everything, and that's exactly what the position required. A guy that knew about science, conservation, communities, uh, administration, finance. So the next 25 years were a wonderful trip of learning and strengthening my different skills. It's always so interesting when you can look back at your life and in, in the moment, you have no clue what next stage is coming when you're on the tuna boat that, you know, five, 10 years later, you're going to be heading up this massive conservation trust fund. And I think the benefit of hindsight and the career that you've had is you get to see how things can be nonlinear, but they can come together and make sense, which I think for especially younger people today is, is quite an encouraging message. For those of us who don't necessarily understand well the realm of conservation finance, what is the role of something like Fondo Mexicano in the space? What what do you guys do? And and where does it fill that, that important niche in protecting nature's ecosystems? Well, first of all, I have to say what we what I did at Fondo Mexicano. I retired from Fondo Mexicano in January 2020. The institution is now led by a very professional team. Uh, the CEO now is Rene Gonzalez Montagut, and she's continuing this amazing work of this institution. So I can talk about what we did and what I do now from my new uh, institutional platform, which is conservation finance. And, and, and basically, when we design Fondo Mexicano, and but that applies to any other institution as well, somehow there was agreement all around the world that we needed sort of intermediary institutions that could manage large chunks of money, either endowment or sinking funds, project funds, and then disperse them to the different executing organizations in the country. So what we did is to design an institution capable of that. And that's what Fondo became, an institution that provides financial assistance, technical assistance to the 300, 315 uh, civil society organizations active in Mexico. Um, In my new role, after retirement, I'm doing exactly the same. But um, now I'm doing it through a different institution, an independent institution, one that was incorporated in February called Terra Habitus, which is basically a regional environmental fund. So we sort of put together deals for conservation of large tracts of land under the control or the management or the jurisdiction of private owners and the ejidos. And we help them do a better job of managing their land so that that by doing the same thing they want to do, which, for example, raising cattle, they can do it in such a way that the ecosystem is regenerated. So that's what we do. We have several tools, but basically conservation finance, going to, to your original question, is 
putting together deals that use finance as a tool to improve conservation projects, develop new formulas, new mechanisms, and break or, or, or change a few paradigms of how things are done. When you're at the head of that kind of institution, and even just with all of the staff and, and, and friends that you have around you, how do you keep updated on what nature wants, what what the land is actually acquiring in terms of projects? Because I think it can be quite, I wouldn't say easy, but I can imagine that it happens that when you're constantly dealing with the high level financial operations of these funds and of these kinds of accounts, how do you know what's needed on the ground, let's say in Mexico, in a particular ecosystem, in the rangelands, in the grasslands? Like who are your eyes and ears on the ground so you know that you're funding the right things, delegating the right way, and also building up an ecology of different, you know, these 300 different groups? Because you're kind of a coordinating body in a way because you have this fascinating oversight. So how do you remain accountable and up to date with, with the ground truth? That's a, that's a very good question, Alexa. Yes, um, it's difficult to really know what's going on on the ground. We have a, I, I guess you have it also in English, that we have a say that nothing is black or white, just tones of gray, shades of gray. And that's that's with conservation as well. Um, you have conflicts, you have problems, you have um, crises, and everything you have different points of view and they are seem to be very polarized. What I did during my 25-year leadership at Fondo was to travel a lot to see what was going on. It was a completely different picture, what you saw in some reports to what you saw at field level. Of course, it was a large investment in time to do, go and do those visits. Uh, but I think most of my really, really deep learning, my, my best learning was talking to people at field level, seeing the problems, understanding what was going on. And, and that would give me a very deep knowledge of the problems, and then I could take right decisions. Let me tell you an example. You can have a wonderful report on the operation of a protected area. The protected area can even be try to be registered as a green protected area in the IUCN list or whatever. And it takes just a trip and a few visits, especially at night, to discover the other world, to discover what's really going on. And then you really know what is what needs to be done. Uh, sometimes information comes through your eyes and ears. Sometimes information comes through conversations. But always being at the site makes a huge difference, a huge difference. Let me go to a more recent experience. I was, last Friday, we were visiting a ranch that is managed by a local university, um, a very recognized agrarian university. And um, they were talking about about some problems, um, about the problems they had. And just that afternoon after leaving, we lived one of the problems. So, so, so not only did I hear the big concerns of the ranch manager, but in my way out lived the experience. So, so, so again, that, that gives you really, really strong evidence of where you should move, what are the priorities. And you should also rely on very good field people, which is another way to do it. I had a few persons that were extremely well-trained to do field work. 
and I trusted them so so they could also be my eyes. So when you cannot go, you send your field experts that you trust and then they will get back with a story, a message that you can trust. I think that those field experts kind of operate also as the voices of the land, you know, whether it's someone who is only monitoring the bald eagles or someone who's working with snakes or, but we need those people on the ground who are translating what the ecosystem is attempting to say into our human language to then convey it to large multilateral institutions or governments to say, actually, this is an ecosystem in crisis or this natural area is not functioning correctly. The trophic cascade is completely out of whack. And I'm wondering if, if in your career, and I, I think that we've, we know one of these people in common, but if you could tell uh, or describe maybe one of these field agents who was so in love and so passionate with a species or with a creature, and maybe that was even yourself in your career, there are certain species that you are more deeply in love with and, and how that human being even manages to translate what the ecosystem wants into like a human form. A, a way to express that would be to avoid oversimplification of things. Uh, most of us, or most people, probably including me, we have been separated for so long from the environment, from nature, from ecosystems, that we, are, we start developing a simplified framework of what life is or what life should be and how we, we get to have this quality of life. But on the other hand, you have incredibly complex ecosystems uh, that are being transformed slowly and like the, like the tail of the frog and the, and the lukewarm water that eventually gets spoiled uh, and killed. We, we don't see the change because we are living it piecemeal very slowly. So what do you do? How do you get that message conveyed? I think through communication. I think communication is the most underused uh, uh, resource for conservation. But communication can be only effective if what you communicate is easy to understand, it's attractive, and people start getting the idea. Uh, the, the, probably the example you were referring to where to the story we did many years ago, bringing high in the, into the agenda the conservation needs of the Golden Eagle which should be a no-brainer project for Mexico because it's a national emblem. It's in our flag. It's everywhere. It's in our coins. It's in all of government documents. However, we have a dwindling population of golden eagles, and it's very easy to protect them. It's fairly easy given, provided that there is political will and you have some resources. So what we, what I guess one of the tools is to have people take emblematic species and link them to the complex ecosystems and try to explain things with that. I think in the end, everybody has a biophilic soul deep down. But we just have to figure it where it is, and we have to connect with them through great stories. And, and in that respect, field experts, people that work every day um, with, the, with, the, with the problems, should somehow to be the first storytellers for everybody because they are living the problems. So that's my my take on that. And obviously, every time I have a chance, I go out into the field because every time I do that, I have a new knowledge. I have a I I close a new tie and I I I connect a, a new dot. And once you finish connecting the most relevant dots on a subject, you have a real good diagnosis on what to do. During your time in Fondo or with Mar or across all the different initiatives that you've seen, 
Is there an example that we can learn from today of some communication or translation that was made on behalf of another species that you think was incredibly successful and that the conservation and biodiversity movement can can kind of look to as an inspiring example? There were many examples that I could use. Um, and I have to tell you that very late in my career at Fondo did we figure out that we had to do much better communications. But the moment we started doing specific efforts towards communication, a new world of opportunities opened. Two examples. Back in um, 2008, I believe, or 2009, I was approached by a Canadian IMAX company that wanted to do an IMAX film on the monarch butterfly migration. And since we were very strong on monarch butterfly conservation through the Protected Areas Program and also through a specific earmarked fund, the Monarch Fund, that project was key, strategic, central to us. And so when these guys approached us with this idea of doing an IMAX film, on the flight of the butterflies on the migratory history of the species, we said, yes, let's do it. Obviously, after that, we discovered the price tag was huge, huge, enormous. However, we kept confident, and we had never done something like that. It, the price tag was beyond any fund of financing, even fund of being such a large institution. So what we did is we worked with government agencies, with the Ministry of Tourism, with the Ministry of the Environment, with the states where the monarch butterfly sanctuaries are. And thanks to the, the great push of the director of this uh, IMAX company, who was an incredible guy, and I'm very sad to say that he died a few years ago. But he saw his movie go to completion, and it was a full success because it's a movie that in one hour, uh, more or less of time, it tells you an amazing story of an incredibly sophisticated insect that can do navigation through three countries in, in the northern continent and how fine-tuned nature can be after all these million years of evolution. So it was, it was a really a great experience, a great story, and I think it did a lot for conservation. So that's one example. And the other one, which is at a much smaller scale, is, believe it or not, in all of our existence as a country, no one, obviously, I'm talking about the recent years when electronics and digital equipment are available, but no one had ever taped or or filmed the process of a golden eagle pair feeding and taking care of the chick. Most research was done from 400 yards with a binocular, trying to figure out what the eagle was bringing into the nest for the chick. And we were able, good advice, good training, good people, um, the generosity of several companies that donated resources and equipment. We were able to film the whole process at the distance that you could see a fly standing in the, on top of the bill of the chicken. And so we had this amazing footage of a survival story between this chick and the environment, the pair of golden eagles. And that itself was very much recognized in the media. And people realized that that the golden eagle was not granted in Mexico, that it was a dwindling population, that we should take care of it, and and that it had I, I am sure it brought some consciousness to the people that without wanting it really affect the species. So those two examples. 
I think uh, the responsibility of anyone doing conservation, even conservation finance, is to tell the story, to tell what they are doing, to showcase your projects, your examples, your successes, and also your failures, and try to explain them. Because if, if you don't tell them to the world, no one will know what you did or what you did right or what you did wrong. And I think one of the strongest leverages for doing real stuff is to have this knowledge sharing effort and that everybody knows what's working and that everybody knows what's not working. And in this way, you get you get more impact at the scale is needed to change things the way they are. I couldn't agree more with you. And I think also these kinds of stories are a bit of a, an antidote to so much of the despair and the crisis conversation and these little lighthouses or these sparks of beauty that are occurring around the world where something has come back or some species is being cared for by a human being. That is the narrative that I believe we we need to live into versus everything's just going to hell. I mean, it's obviously a very challenging time that we're in. Um, when you go into the land, and I know this about you, that you are an incredible photographer and you get, you capture these images of birds and species and organisms in a way that is that is beyond the ordinary it's like you have some kind of even through your through this lens through this machine you lorenzo and that creature are in some kind of communication because the pictures that you take are incredible and i've also had the honor of being gifted one of your watercolors and i also know that that comes through in the way that your brush like minutely paints on this paper so how do you engage with the land and tell those stories? When you go in, is it just, is it instinctual for you? Is there a way that you can advise other people who are like, I don't even know where to start. Like, how do I even do this? Like communication story, connecting, looking at things. How do you do it? And I guess following up from that, what advice do you have? My, my advice would be open your senses uh, and start with the easiest one or the most evident one. They say we are homovidens, which means that most of our functioning goes through instructions that, that go through vision, through the eyes. Uh, of course, we use other senses, but this is the most important. Everything is manufactured around sight. So the first thing I would recommend is learn to see. Learn to see. It's amazing. Many people go through the world without seeing stuff. And this is a very simple story. But we had many years ago, we we put together um, with the leadership of a, per a wonderful person that was my mentor of life and my mentor in conservation. And he was also a bird watcher. He was a business person from Monterrey. His name, Andres Marcelo Sada. So he started taking us bird watching and we immediately got caught by the idea that there were so many different species, all of them different, different colors, different sizes, different shapes, different bills, different everything. So we became really avid bird watchers. And this is, I'm talking, I'm, I'm telling you 40 years ago. But then at the same time, we were having a, a life, a typical life in the city, and we would have a dinner and have a conversation. And people, there were people that told me that it was so funny that I was watch, watching birds because what do you look at them? They are all brown. So 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 basically they are not looking at them. They 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 saw a bird or something moving that they assumed it was not a big insect, and they assumed it was a bird, but for them all of them were either black or brown. They were not watching them, they were not looking at them. And same with plants, same with minerals, 
with landscapes. So my first recommendation would be always learn to see because it's not the same thing. For example, if you're looking at plants or flowers, don't look them from your standing up. Look them from the ground. Look them from below. Lie down, even if there's ants or ticks, but try to do something different so you have a different angle. Life is a combination of perspectives, of angles, and you have to learn how to see. So so, so that would be one. And then, and then that opens many, many other um, ways. But seeing is the most relevant. There's no such thing as a good photographer that cannot see, that cannot learn how to take a different approach to things. Would you give me a second so I can take a sip of coffee? Please take as many sips as you want. You. It's all good. By the way, this is not none of this being taped, but air quality is so poor where I live. And again, that's a, another good example. You cannot see air quality. You can feel it slowly <clears throat> affecting you. We should be able to show air quality in a graphic way so that everybody understands the big mess we have with air quality. Yeah, I think, Lorenzo, you're touching on something that is so critical, and it's just the resensitizing of the human being. And it doesn't matter in what domain of conservation or any, honestly, in whatever career you're in, but we as a species, I believe, I might be wrong, but I do believe that we have lost so many of our sensitivities. And you spoke about one, sight, but also what we're taking into our bodies, air, et cetera, et cetera. And unless we become sensitive, that means becoming alive in our own bodies, we're not going to see the aliveness in the world around us. It will just be matter. It will just be a natural resource. It will not be a, a, a being. It will, you know, a forest will just be lumber. And that act of proximity, I love the image of you like on the ground with the ants. And it reminds me every time I go to a forest, if I can, I, I lie down in the moss and I'm like, this is, this is a whole forest. Like it's small, but if I was this small, it's an entire forest. And that, that act of just getting close and getting incredibly curious, I, I think what's so inspiring about your example is, you know, you're, you're heading these capital campaigns and you're operating with all of these big ecosystem players, but you're not going to do that work well unless you yourself are sensitive and attuned, right? And I think that a large part of your success has been that sensitivity. Did you find that other people who you were interacting with were curious about that sensitivity, that those who most inspired you, no matter what their um, accolades or their recognized achievements were, did you find that they also had some form of sensitivity that was precise and honed in and, and acute. People can be successful in the conservation finance field without being very sensible. But every time they are sensible, they are even more successful. What I mean, what I try to say is that it works both ways. You not only are more convincing to other people that you are trying to get into a team, a funding scheme, a campaign, but you are also more in peace with yourself because you know that what you are doing is worth. What you are doing is really worth because you are not raising money just for another building or another airport or another company or another extractive industry or whatever. You are raising money for something meaningful, for something really important for the future. A few months ago, I read an amazing book called The Good Ancestor. And of course, the title is amazing, The Good Ancestor. 
very attractive. And it had many of the ideas I had with respect to the future were in that book, which is one of the things I love from books, that there's always someone that expressed these great ideas in a way that you say, yes, I thought about that, but this guy really did it well. So uh, you take those ideas and you go through them again. And I think this concept of deep time, uh, this concept of doing the right thing now, it's an amazing concept because it will be reflected if you do things right and you do them at scale. It would be reflected in many, many conservations I had. And so hopefully when you don't exist anymore, someone is going to, a grand-grandson will say, hey, my grand-grandfather was a good ancestor because he thought about things that are important for me in this moment a few generations ahead. That entire concept of what can also be called, I don't know if he refers to it in the book, but seven generation thinking, you know, plant the trees whose shade you won't grow under. Yeah. And this is something that I do struggle with when it comes to the financial industry and doing some early startup venture investing myself. And the timelines are not necessarily biological, right? They are short, quick, speedy. Everything is exponential. Everything has to be spun out rapidly. I understand the urgency. The urgency is absolutely real. I feel it in every cell of my body. And yet the ecological cycles that are the very substrate that we're living in operate to a different timescale. And in your experience, when have the financial and economic cycles been so out of synchrony with the natural cycles that you've tried to work with and that you are working with? Like, how do you see those two systems at odds? And then the follow-on would be, how have you tried to reconcile them? Because some people say capitalism and nature will never work together. They are fundamentally incompatible. Some people will say, no, we can fix nature through technology, through smart financing. And as you say, I think everything is gray and there's probably a lot of truth to all of those statements. <laughs> okay. Another interesting question. Yes. When you compare financial cycles, when you look at the stock markets and that you see that everybody's avid on looking at the, of the, at the results of the next quarter and that will determine gains or losses and in periods of time so short as a few months, that doesn't make sense because nature, as we know from hard science, nature works with hundreds of thousands, millions of years of adjustments, evolution, and time frames. So what's my take? And yes, everything is different shades. There's no simple solution. Our bet is to do projects that somehow align with the financial status quo and provide hard information that we are doing the right thing so we gain time so that we have the chance of looking a little bit more long-term and doing a few things more that look into the future. So basically, it's putting a foot, a foot in the door. And let me give you an example. There's a very, very uh, known success story in Mexico in terms of biological regeneration. And it's a marine story, which you know is Cabo Pulmo in the, in the southern tip of the Baja California Peninsula. So that place went through the whole cycle. It was a very abundant place, a, a, a very abundant rocky reef in terms of biodiversity, carnivores, sharks, turtles, mammals, everything. 
And then a community settled there and then they were fishermen and they fished it out and then they realized there was no more fish. And somehow the community got organized and protected it. And 10 years after the protection, results were visible in terms of abundance. And since the place had the, and, and the ocean is, you have a continuum of, of life. So larva, larvae and, and other fishes came and colonized and you started getting the place back to its original condition now, more than 20-something years after the decision of the community to protect it, the place is just exploding with life, and it has become the diving capital of Mexico, specific, probably of all Mexico. And although the community has lots of issues and problems as a community, because it's mostly one family with many ramifications, this is a success story. This says this project, this place, recovered from degradation and became again what it should be. And that was a 20-year time frame or a 10-year time frame to see some results and a 20-year time frame to see spectacular results. But the evidence is there. So my point is we should be looking at those examples where in 10 or 20-year time frames we can bring something back that brings quality of life, social justice, and brings nature back to the way it should be. Because then we can we have strong arguments to say, hey, then we should be doing more like more of this. And there is there is this other 50 or 60 or 20 sites where you can repeat the formula. So my point is that yes, the regeneration of Earth will take hundreds of years, probably thousands of years, the way we have it now. But we have to start somewhere. And having this clash between the financial short-term is, let me say, use that term, and the long-term needs of nature has to, we found, we have to find the common ground and show that in economic, social, and survival terms, it's much better to respect nature, to help it restore, and to work within limits. And I think that's another key word here, limits. Someone sold us many years ago the idea that there was no limits. Yes, there's limits. There's very crucial limits everywhere in the atmosphere, in the, in the hydrological cycle, in the carbon cycle, in biodiversity loss, in the nitrogen cycle. Everything has limits because we live in a confined planet and we have reached a scale where we can just affect everything. So going back to your original question of this, of this last question is, we, the people that work in conservation, should look for examples that are functional in short-term periods like 10, 20 years, because that is our argument to go to greater lengths. That sounds like those kinds of projects are your foot in the door for the much longer-term projects that will require 50, 70, 80 years and a, a larger restructuring of all the other systems that overlap with the, with the ecological systems. I think something that's interesting and that I personally am struggling to create a strong opinion around is the factoring of things like biodiversity, um, not only into risk assessments, but into credits and compensation and so on. Because you are, no matter what, taking an infinite amount of variables that are the greatest expression of complexity that we know, aka nature, the living world, all of these relationships all these beings, and we're trying to create simple standardized ways of understanding them through metrics that can then be traded and bartered and sold. And yet it seems like factoring 
biodiversity or nature into, let's say, financial balance sheets is also absolutely critical because just not having it there is the biggest accounting error of them all. And so I believe that those who are working on those kinds of products and valuations and calculations must have some kind of ecological sensitivity if we're going to hopefully not make some tremendous errors in simplifying, oversimplifying. And as you say, it's this balance between what's a five, 10-year win, 20-year win to a five, 10-year win that was built on maybe lacking uh, certain important assumptions or factors. And then down the line, we, we realize we may have messed things up. So I don't know if in the course of your career, you either saw an example of something like that, or if what I just mentioned is something that you have concerns about or that you're also tracking in your own way. It happens. And yes, I saw a few examples. And again, you have to do both things. You have to do an approximation of the incredible value of biodiversity. But at the same time, you have to accept that life's value is beyond any measurement and any compensation. However, we are beyond the point where we can live without harming nature. And let me put the example of mining, the steel extraction, um, the digital industry that requires so many minerals. So at some point, we really have to invade some of those spaces. And I think the big, big smart thing to do will be to use resources and, and do like compatibility matrices where you can say, okay, this place means much more for conservation and for the future of humanity as a, con a conservation place than a place that is exploited. And that's very difficult because there's always someone saying, I have the right to do this because it's my enterprise or it's my opportunity to do business. But somehow there will be a balance between between what, what I call uh, the potential of the, of the land. Some lands should never be developed and some lands have been already affected so much that you should do the least damage in those places uh, if you are going to extract minerals, to say an example. Now, a good example of how the emotions play against the economics and the politics I do have, it's a very old example, but it was a fascinating example. Uh, it was very popular in its time. It was many, many, many years ago during the presidency of uh, Ernesto Cedillo, and that was 1994 to year 2000. And there was this big clash between government, uh, foreign investment, and the conservation community because they wanted to expand the operation of a state-run salt mining enterprise. And they wanted to expand it from Guerrero Negro, which is north in the peninsula. Well, not north, north. It's, it's, it's a, in, 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 in the, in, let's say, halfway through the peninsula on the Pacific. And they wanted to expand it to Laguna San Ignacio, which is middle. Just for as a reference, gray whales use three lagoons, Guerrero Negro, San Ignacio, and Bahia Magdalena for their calving season. That's where the little gray whales are born and then get strong and then they go back to Alaska. But anyhow, so for us, and San Ignacio was a protected area. So it was a big clash because it was an international company. It was the government very much interested. And guess what changed everything? Because we did analysis and we had meetings and it was a big, big, messy affair. In the end, what changed things is that the then Minister of the Environment, which is one of the most amazing persons I have ever met because of her commitment, Julia Carabias, and because of her professionalism and real, real 
conservation agenda she had. She had this great idea. She invited the president to see the whales in the middle of the clash. So basically the president accepted to go to a one-day field trip to see the whales. So he took the president, his wife, and his children, put them on a boat, and took them to see the whales. And that's all she did. So, so, And they somehow, a very smart whale, knew he was a, an important person, became very friendly with them. But the emotional experience that he had recognizing that this was beyond markets, this was beyond uh, finance, this was beyond creating jobs, this was a world miracle. And so he came back and said, forget it, the project is canceled, this stays as a protected area. That is an example, an experience where a sensitive person sees something he cannot see from the office. He has to see there. And this goes back to one of your questions. The nature can give you so powerful messages that after that you are completely engaged in a new vision, a new principle, a new way of doing things. Oh, I love that story for so many reasons. The first is like, thank you to that whale <laughs> who knew that their whole fate decided and depended on um, this president falling in love with the whales. And I think it's also interesting that the kids were there and often the path to a greater ecological consciousness is through people's children. I've heard those anecdotes many times, you know, the kid comes home and says, why aren't we recycling? And what's so poignant about your story is that one, how do you bring as many people who have that decision-making power to those places as possible? That is tricky. And I think especially as everyone believes that we can now do everything on Zoom, why would I, why would I travel four days? You know, I, I have everything I need to know. My model is way more intelligent than it was 10 years ago. It's all mapped out. So convincing people to have that experiential process is, is a challenge, but I think it is one that I would encourage everyone to try and do and to bring people to those places. And the second part of that is we need a few, as you said, strongholds of alive places to bring people to. Otherwise, you know, this concept of the shifting baseline syndrome, where if you've never seen an old growth forest, that you think that every skinny tree farm is just a forest. And if that project had happened, maybe there would have been no whales to visit 10 years later. And so I think that going back to what you said before about those quicker gain short-term projects, they're also essential in creating these little uh, refugia of lands where people can go to to understand, okay, like the human species is not at the top of this pyramid. There's actually all these other forms of life. And just by spending time with them, I will naturally be humbled. As you said, every human being has that biophilic capacity. So your anecdote is a beautiful and inspiring one. And I think that for people listening, I think it also is an inspiring one as to why we need to protect some of these places. Not, not just for the creatures who live there, obviously that's the most important, but for our own human imagination and ability to connect and love. And I think be more of whatever, we, whatever we're here to be. Just imagine what the world would be if there would be no other species but us. What a boring place. What, a, what an incredibly sad place this would be. Obviously, that place, that, that world cannot exist because it would collapse. I mean, starting with the pollinators and with the microbes and all of or the, the microorganisms and so on. But the philosophical exercise of imagining a world full of humans with no whales, no butterflies, no birds, no, just, just a technical world where our protein intake or our nutritional needs are satisfied and our physiological needs are satisfied. I mean, it would be, that's, 
I can think about something more sad than that. And I think these places that we save, these places that we regenerate, are just an example of, of what life on Earth should be. And they become well-managed, they become showcases, they become examples of what our vision is for the world. And um, another thing I want to mention is the importance of children. Children, some, as you know, children have a completely different way of looking at the world, especially smaller children. And I think children should be considered in this formula because I think very responsible to be taking decisions as adults when really we are on our way out. And the world to be lived will be one where our children will be mostly present. So using these short-term examples and at the same time making a stronger argument of this transgenerational responsibility, I think that's the key to open many political minds and many political wills and make change happen. That's that's so beautifully said. And it's kind of the paradox of holding the deep time with the imminent time. That is also, I think, a luxury to be able to be in a position where you can where you can even hold those perspectives. Um, a final question. I know we could keep talking for a very long time. Is there a particular life lesson that you've learned from another creature, another species, something that you saw or someone who you spent time with and they altered your way of being. They, they brought you some kind of lesson and some kind of wisdom. And I'm sure you have a lot of stories. But if there's maybe one that might come to mind of just what that kind of interspecies wisdom can be. Okay, it's, it's an interspecies wisdom experience. Yes, I've had many, but probably the most amazing one, and I don't know if I, at some point I told it to you, but anyhow, here it goes because it's a very beautiful uh, and very graphic one is that one day in the Gulf of California, when I had the privilege of traveling and visiting nature and the islands and the amazing assortment of marine mammals in the Gulf of California with my friend Sven Lindblad, we were exploring in one of the zodiacs and suddenly we saw what you call a fishbowl una pelota de peces, a fishbowl. So that means that there's lots of sardines and there's uh, birds falling from top and, 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 sea, and sea lions and tuna and sharks feeding from below. And somehow the protection of the sardines becomes like a spherical school of fish, which in this case was pretty big. And, and it's, it's amazing to see it because everybody's so busy feeding that you can get really close and no one will take a, put attention in you. I remember at the beginning of the experience taking my cap and bringing it into the water and, and filling it with sardines. And obviously, I sent them back, but it was that kind of experience. Somehow, the next level was that I was convinced to get into the water with snorkel fins and see the thing from below, not with scuba diving equipment, because that would have been even better. But we, we didn't have time. We had snorkeling gear on, on the boat. So we got into the water, three of us, a photographer, a naturalist, and myself. And it was an amazing experience because we could see the, the fish and sea lions like rockets come from below, from the deep blue. We could see the birds splashing and getting into the water at our side. And at the same time, after a while, there, was so, there were so many scales in the water that, that it was like a silver rain all around and the light was perfect and, and transparency was perfect uh, and everything was perfect. So it was 
an amazing experience. But the real connection, the real intraspecies connection happened many minutes later because we stayed there until the end. Believe it or not, the fishbowl was reduced from several meters into a much smaller fishbowl. And suddenly we realized that it was a two-feet fishbowl uh, left, the last survivors from this uh, feeding frenzy. And believe it or not, they came very close to us because somehow they figured that we were not the ones that were eating them. And in an inspirational moment, the three of us held our hands together with our feet down and our heads up. We held our hands and we created like a safe space of a one meter 20 or four, four foot or five foot. And automatically the fishbowl moved into that space. And and it's, it's probably the most magical moment in my life because just floating in that immense space, blue space, really vulnerable because you don't know what's below. So you're floating there. Um, so you can have a surprise. But we were confident holding our hands and the last 100, 200 fish in a very compact, perfectly circular fishbowl swimming in the middle of us. So that was like a powerful message saying that we can live and between species we can help us. And of course, many will die and many will be eaten because that's nature. But we have a thing to do. We have an obligation towards the rest of the world not to mess it up big scale. So I think we have to work with our hearts and with our intelligence of slowly bringing things back to the way they should be. So this experience, which is like taking care of a small world by humans, and that's my, my interpretation. And believe it or not, someone filmed it. And believe it or not, I lost the film. It wasn't that time where you had uh, this those big uh, VHS things, and I lost it. So any, anyhow, it's in my mind. Oh, my gosh. You know the sculpture of the, the the Atlas holding the Earth on his back, and it's like, how much more poetic is that image of surrounding this ball of life, a bunch of humans and hands with this ball floating in the yeah. middle? Yeah. I know what I'm going to get you for your birthday. I'm going to recreate the sculpture. What that is? That is an exquisite image. Actually, actually that would be a nice project of a watercolor. So I'm going to start working on that. Difficult one because because perspective has to be perfect and, and everything has to be perfect, but I will try. Well, I, I, for everyone who's who's going to listen to this in the future, we're going to have Lorenzo's watercolor somewhere where you'll be <laughs> able to see it. Lorenzo, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm, I feel like we could really keep talking for hours. And we will, <laughs> by the way, just off the record. So thank you so much. Thank you. And just let me say that I feel privileged to be able to share this with you and with the people that will hear it and see it. I think every morning I am grateful that I have been put by destiny and by work in this position of being someone that eventually might become a good ancestor. Thank you. Oh, you already are a good ancestor. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. There's so much to take away from what Lorenzo shared. And do stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks' time, where we'll be learning all about Indigenous ceremonies, protocols, and how to carve totem poles. As always, I'd love to hear from you, so please do reach out to me on the website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open-source library ranging on everything from ecology to finance to technology and life at large. 
subscribe to our email list, and I'll see you back here soon.